Hello listeners, Tim Sylvie here. We're back for another episode and I need to head across the airwaves to bring in my co-host, motorsport content king, YouTube extraordinaire, man of the people, Tom McCluskey. How are you, my friend? Hey, I love that, man of the people. I'm, I'm happy to adopt that title, even though not all the people agree with me. But you know what? Man of That's people. fine. That's life, Tim. Yeah. You know? This is life. But you were at um, the F1 Arcade gig the other week, weren't you? How was it? Is it any good? I, it, you know what? It was very, very fun. Um, it was the bar was very very free, which was great. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I had a good time. I actually briefly bumped into one of our guests today. I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Anyway. You probably did with a free bar. The other great free bar is the race um, awards. Are you going to go to that one? Were you there last time? Well, not yet, but I'm going to have to knock on some doors and you, potentially. I'd were, love to. That was a very free bar. I remember nearly none of it. <laughs> but um, it's, it's coming up, I think, early next year. So I expect I'll be there again, capitalising on free stuff. Um, should we bring in today's guests? Let's do it. So today we are joined by the motorsport power couple. Chris Medlin studied sports journalism before jumping into the world of Formula One. He joined ESPN in 2011, then becoming Racer Magazine's F1 correspondent. He's appeared on TV shows and radio and amassed a social following that could fill Wembley Stadium several times over. He's alongside Jess McFadden. No, not Jessica McFadden, the popular New Zealand cricketer who's wicketkeeper for the Wellington Blaze, but the trailblazing motorsport Jess McFadden, currently the director of digital strategy at the Motorsport Network and formerly head of WTF1. She's an inspiration to women around the world. It's a pleasure to have both her and Chris here to chat about their lives, career, thoughts and opinions. Jess, Chris, a very warm welcome to the Motormouth podcast. How are we doing? Before we get into it, a really quick message. This show has grown into something far bigger than we ever imagined. It's been a huge honor to chat with F1 world champions like Nico Rosberg, legends like Mario Andretti, Jodie Schechter, and Gerhard Berger. People right at the top of the sport like the brilliant Gunter Steiner and current stars like Alex Albon, Lucas Degrassi, and Tatiana Calderon. It really is a privilege. But without you, we wouldn't be able to continue. And without sponsors, we couldn't bring you the stories from the inner workings of the sport we all love. With that in mind, I'm over the moon to have F1 Experiences back with us to support the show for season 13. It's really important to us that we align with brands that are relevant and can add value to you. F1 Experiences is the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. And it's the closest thing you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport. You can book with them today. With F1 Experiences official ticket packages coming direct from Formula One, you can get unique access that simply isn't available anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 Experience, visit f1experiences.com, where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 Experience package by using the code MMPODCAST when checking out online. Good things come to those who listen to the Motormouth Podcast. Don't say we don't treat you well. So, what are you waiting for? The 2023 F1 season will be here before you know it, so go get booking your F1 Experience today with f1experiences.com. Very well, aren't we? Yeah, we're doing good. We're not too bad. Are you going to uh, correct on your surname? No, I just, you know what? <laughs> Go like, on. I, I, I mean, this is part of the reason why we're getting married next year, so I can do away with the, <laughs> my surname. But it's it's genuinely, it's a bit of a mouthful. It, it, it's McFadden. No way. Like, say it, yeah, you say it how you, you, say it how you see it. You right? say it how you see it. There, McFadden. It's got a Y in there. The Y is, you know, there's nothing wrong with a Y. No, that's, so, it's, that's a good point. Yeah, I, but I tend not to, I tend not to correct people because I pretty much answer to anything. So, uh, there we go. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. And also, 
your uh, background settings for today. Jess, uh, you, I know you're covering that, that lovely hat collection as well. Lovely hat we, collection. We saw at the start. What's, what's going on there? So where are you? Where, where is this location? This is our spare room, basically. I call it spare room. It's, our, it's a tip. Fortunately, you guys can see the nice part of it. Uh, the dogs asleep on the sofa, which is the cute part, but then the rest of it is genuinely a tip of uh, clothes that we're getting rid of, my golf gear, but it's our kind of, yeah, it's our second room, so it's got a sofa bed, so it's the guest room, but this is where we work from home, so... Uh, tried to put some nice memorabilia in the background just it looks so good. that it looks professional every now and then. It's I, the because seeing as we both work in motorsport, when we first moved into this apartment, we made a rule collectively. It wasn't just like my rule or his rule, but that this was the only room in the house that we could have anything motorsport related. Otherwise, I think our entire decor would just be yep. F one, which I'm sure for a lot of people would be like, well, that's a really cool thing to do, but. One of the things we've also tried to work really hard on is like boundaries and <laughs> yeah, good like idea. cut off from work, considering we both are in 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 the world. So yeah, we've got we've got quite a lot of of stuff that is F one or motorsport related, and the stuff that you can see is the stuff we've managed to hang, and the stuff you can't see is what's on the floor to our right. Um, yeah. That is 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 kind of still piling up, but I guess it's one of the. One of the perks of the job is that you get you get to uh, either buy or get hold of some some pretty cool stash. So Absolutely. yeah, we've got a we've got a few cool bits up and about uh, that we've managed to collect over the years. I, I particularly like the, the strategically placed racer magazine by Chris's right ear, which well, yeah, which has got me that's got me in trouble at work. Yeah. Like just, <laughs> just so you know, like yeah. that has actually got me in trouble. The rivalry's because, already starting. Yeah, we do we do work for rival rival Ooh. companies and so i've been doing a live stream on my company's instagram page with racer magazine in the background Very and good. that did not go down well yeah your boss told you to uh dump me because of that but, he did uh thankfully you didn't the, well i'm just gutted that you didn't mention the trophies that i've tried to subtly put right in front yeah, of yeah very good very good what so uh, you, from karting karting ah okay so That's go on turn round. right i'm gonna just one second i'm gonna turn one round now yeah yeah that's so subtle, Chris. You're really subtle with the, the flex there. I love it. There you go. Uh, it's from so Alpine did a very cool karting championship this year for uh, journalists. And there was four rounds. Uh, and yeah, uh, there were trophies for the top three in each round and stuff. And I finished second in the championship. Wow. With a couple of wins. So well done, you. Um, it's, got, it's my trophies from that. And um, the one that's actually directly behind me, which I will move for in a sec, is a proper, really fancy glass trophy that they took to the last two rounds of the season. And it's so heavy. And I was really happy to get it, but getting it into my bag was a nightmare. So it's... <laughs> it looks That's very impressive. Problems, right? Well, well, we'll have to get. <laughs> Hang on. Oh, hold on. I've got to get one. Of oh, these. here we go. Tim, Tim's like, I want to be involved now. Tom, I didn't win this, but you'll have to come to our karting event. Tom, I think, has won one of these, haven't you? So we we have a, a sort of biannual, well, not biannual, twice a year we have a karting event, and um, I think Tom, yeah, he's gone off to get his trophy. I think he got on the podium <laughs> at, at, at the last one. Um, I think Jimmy Broadbent's won it once. And, uh, and Tom's, what did he come for? Third. I, uh, I earned this one, Tim. Yeah. I don't get it just because I started the started the karting event. You get you can get any one you want, mate. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, but you, and, you, should, and... you should come. You should come along. It's, it's, it's good fun. And the competition's stiff. This year, actually, it was won by a group, uh, uh, Luke, a guy called Luke, who invited four of his mates who were F2 drivers. So <laughs> highly unfair. So they won at a canter. Um, but, if uh, I can get on the podium, anyone can. True. Let's be real. Come this on. Is true. 
I, I was about to say, I, I kind of dine on the fact that uh, with the media one, we've got some decent carters, but most of them are just for a bit of fun and, and never get to do it. And there's a massive disparity in carts. Yes. So I managed to win the first round because I had the best car. I nearly, nearly beat Oscar Piastri. Wow. Because when he overtook me and I was like, well, he'll disappear. Clang. I could, right. Well, I could stick with him because my car was so much quicker than a straight line. It was brilliant. So, Jess, um, Jess, have you done any karting at all? Yeah, yeah. I've done, I've done a little bit. We did some in uh, after Abu Dhabi. Uh, after the season finale this year, so uh, we've done we've done a bit of a bit of stuff, haven't we? Yeah, that's yeah. with Jack Aitken, wasn't it? Yeah, who was um, just kind of manipulating the whole race because racing drivers are really really good. And you think you're all having this great fight between yourselves and how brilliant everyone's <laughs> doing. You realise he's actually just going to the front, slowing everyone down, going to the back, coming back again. He was uh, incredible. It's but, uh, it's yeah, frustrating though. Then. But it's, I, I've said this before. Like we, I've I went with um, went go karting with Max Chilton. And he, you know, Max won't mind me saying, he wasn't, at the, he wasn't a front runner in Formula One, but clearly a very talented racing driver nonetheless. And I tried to follow him and do exactly what he did. And I was taking the curbs like him and he just disappeared into the distance. I don't, they've got this innate talent. I mean, I think weight probably comes into it. He weighs about three stone. But um, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that's always my excuse when I'm yeah, slow. <laughs> it's the, it's, that's the classic right, the Carter excuse, isn't it? Well, you know, heavy. if I was just, you know, Few kilos lighter, I'd have all of you. Yeah, um, totally. But totally. it is the, the, it is it is magic watching them watching them race. Like one of the um, it was actually the Alpine event in 2021 at Abu Dhabi. Uh, Fernando Alonso brought his own cart and was doing basically a display uh, of his own. And his honestly, the, he was doing donuts and wheelies, wheelies wow. in a go kart. And the 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 car control, the cart control. It's just insane. And they make it look so easy. And then you jump in and you're like all over the place. You just, you do realize it, that it does. It's not as, it's not as easy as it, as it looks. No, no. But that easier. is, it's just that little, the, the extra finesse that they've got that yeah. just, you know, it makes, it yeah. makes like tenths or seconds around a, a car yeah. track. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not fair, quite frankly. Right. Back to you two. Chris, let's come to you first. What, tell our audience what you do and who you do it for. Uh, I write and talk too much about Formula One. Uh, For anyone so, who'll pay him. Yeah, Fair. basically, that's how it works. Um, wow. If I'm allowed, yeah, the, the description I quite regularly use is I'm a media whore. Nice. Um, it's just, if someone says, here, uh, do this for us, I do it. But um, no, not quite that um, that bad. <laughs> I do Racer Magazine and Racer.com. I'm their Formula One correspondent, so I do written coverage for them in America mainly. Uh, Motorsport Magazine, I do their race reports and a weekly column for them on their website, but I also do some features in the magazine and host some of their podcasts. I host a weekly radio show on SiriusXM in the US, plus their pre- and post-race live coverage. So I do their grid walk and their post-race interviews and go and annoy people. Uh, this year, annoyed mainly Ted Kravitz and Martin Brundle by getting in the way of their grid walks. Very good. Uh, and good then I do a bit of writing for a Japanese website as well. Oh, and Formula1.com, I do... Uh, about three features per race weekend for them that are kind of explaining the basics around what's going on during a race weekend. So things to look out for for fans that maybe missed Saturday uh, and are just tuning in for the race or have never watched a Grand Prix before and want to know what they're looking for or a strategy guide, that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah lots of writing and talking and tweeting, basically. And yeah, yeah, you're the, you're the Fabrizio Romano of uh, F1, right? According to other people. Please don't. Please don't. Use <laughs> Fabrizio Romedland. That's it. <laughs> quit it. Quit it. And That's Jess, the thing. So, and and obviously, yeah, Jess, what is your kind of equivalent to like how similar 
is what you do to what Chris does? Um, I would say there there is crossover, but it's more of a case of what I do is so I'm yeah titled director of digital strategy, but basically I'm I'm we're both storytellers, right? Just in different in mediums, and what we're trying to do is get across the all the stories and all the explainers about what goes on in the crazy world of of motorsport. Um, obviously, a lot of that being F one led, but I'm I almost like do a bit more of the organization of like how do we tell those stories who is telling those stories and then on what platform so a lot of the time that's on youtube or on um, social media and whether that's you know i kind of have a team that are making graphics but i also work with the journalists to be like okay like how are we going to tell this story um for the for the audience to i guess best engage with it because as we saw even with uh you know the team principal mm. silly season that we saw uh the other day it's it's a case of it can get really complex really really quickly so how do um i use the brands that i work across which is autosport and motorsport.com how do i use their insider knowledge um the audience that they speak to like how do we then tell that story across multiple things so chris is like the the doer and I'm almost like the puppet master in the background, kind of moving it's things ba- around. Basically, and how things are at home. Choreographer. It? It's like a, it's, it's a metaphor for your life, I expect. You know, Chris. Just yeah, just yeah. Actor for at home as well. Yeah. 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 We uh, we stay true to type. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah. And then, like, I guess in a weird way as well, like I I have a bit of fun on my own social media channels as well, and I've done a bit of presenting. I'm gonna be back on. Um, F1's Beyond All Limits series, which so sometimes I do take, you know, try and do a bit of uh, journalism myself, if we can call it that. But um, yeah, just I, I think, uh, like, as I said, at, at my very core, I'm, we're, we're storytellers. Yeah. And um, I think that's a really cool thing that we get to we get to do. I, uh, I guess you have to move very quickly as well, because with things like the, you know, silly season with the team principals, it's all going to happen very, very fast. And everyone, all the publishers are trying to publish the news at the same time. Is that one of the challenges that you'll face then on a daily basis to go, right, we need to rally the troops, let's organise and get this news out quickly? Yeah, I guess, again, in a, in a way that it's different for, for Chris and I is that Chris is a little bit more in control of like how that happens because he knows, right, I know I need to do this for this client, this for this client. And there's almost like a, a system that you go through, right? Like you tweet first and obviously he's first to tweet everything. So, uh, and then there's like a system in place and, and you know, he you're very much... As as difficult it is as a one, and I'm talking on behalf of Chris, obviously. But as difficult it is as a one man band, he he knows like kind of like what needs to be done and when. Um, on my side, it is more about right. Okay, how do we pull everything together, and 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 who do I need to put in place to do what to get that out the fastest way possible or in the most efficient way possible? So, um, is that fair to say? Yes, sir. I certainly on my part. <laughs> I don't know about it, but it's on your part. But, but yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's a really complex world. I think um, a lot of people, when they think about Formula One or going into any sport, news, journalism, whatever, I think one of the biggest shocks for them is just how always on you have to be. You know, sometimes if we're lucky, we'll get heads up when stuff's coming. But sometimes that can be like 10 minutes. Sometimes it can be a day. Sometimes it can be a couple of hours. Sometimes not at all. So you're, there's never really like, I think process for us is probably one of the key things that keeps us sane in, in that 
okay, if this scenario happens, regardless of how much lead time we have, this is what we have to do to, to kind of tackle it. But I think for a lot of people, especially when they're starting out, that's quite a shocker. Like the amount of times we've been in uh, service station car parks, like on the way to somewhere, something drops, that means everything else in our life stops and we have to we have to kind of tackle it so especially chris because yeah he like i said he's on his own but well as a more recent example about the team principal silly season um this is a proper first world problem as well <laughs> but uh i was like aware of what was coming for most of it um from the night before so i was up in time and had stuff prepped and ready but then you're reacting to the actual content that comes out what's said what the real detail is that's on there that you maybe don't know yet uh, and then the andrea siegel stuff was um, I didn't know was coming there and then at that point. And um, that caught me out a little bit and I had to sort of chase it that morning. But I had a golf lesson booked in that morning. Um, and Decisions. I, I know, oh, I so confirmed it the class. night before because of the weather, it was freezing and yeah. stuff. Uh, I was like, yeah, I'll definitely be there. And there was a time I had to leave and I suddenly realised, I was, I was waiting, time was getting close. I was like, this might not get announced before I need to leave. So I spoke to McLaren again and I was like, look, I'm going to be out of action like this window. And I'm hearing that that's probably a bad time to be out of action. They're like, yeah, it is, essentially. I'm like, can I get it? And this sometimes works um, or it's offered anyway. But I was like, can I get the release in advance so I can have it prepped and ready and I can hit send when when I'm there? And they're like, no, basically, like we've kept this so tight. Um, it, you know, it's it's not been something that's leaked until today sort of thing. And, um, you know, we're not allowed to, to release anything uh, to anyone in advance. So they gave me the time at least. And it meant that, I stopped, I went, still went to the golf lesson because it was too late and I was going to lose the money if I didn't go. But then I had to say to the guy, like, I'm really sorry, but I've got to stop now and get my phone out and tweet. And then I'd already written basically this, most of the story and I needed to add the quotes and check the facts. Uh, and then I could do on my phone, I could add that in and send the copy over to a racer in the US. And we had a guy who's UK based who was picking up the copy. So um, yeah, my, my golf uh, instructor was kind of, he found it really fascinating and very interesting. Um, and... I found it almost like I was cheating a bit because I was stood in the middle of a, of a golf driving range. Freezing, by the way. I, I made so many typos because my fingers wouldn't work. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I spent... So basically about a quarter of the actual lesson was spent with me working. But that's, in a sense, the good thing. You can do that. You can grab your phone if you if you prep things and have drafts ready. But the flip side is it's the bad thing. You can't ever escape yeah. it. You can't... If you've got your phone on you, you're never off duty. Um, and there are other scenarios where you didn't ask for that or prep for that. And you have to respond. And yeah, it can be a bit a bit draining at times because there are going to be those moments that are you know, a bit of downtime, a bit of switch off time. Yeah. Um, and you don't always get to enjoy them. But proper first world moment, that one. So so when it comes to like breaking news um, and working with the teams, like you say, you, you spoke to McLaren in that instance. Do you have um, collectively, is, is there a close relationship between people like yourselves and the teams? And, and are some teams more kind of... Um, open with you than others i suppose or, or is it just uh is it like an industry standards as such no you're, you're spot on there's some teams that are you've got great relationships with and others that you have terrible ones with um and by terrible i mean like non-existent not that it's negative uh sometimes it can be a bit negative based on maybe something you've written or something that's happened before uh fortunately i don't think i have any of those but uh as an example like ferrari are very hard to get anything out of or if you ask them stuff you might not get replied for a long time partly because they get so much globally uh, kind of interest and request that you sometimes just don't get seen if you send them an email or send them a message or your timing's bad. Uh, with others, you maybe just have spent a bit more time with them or worked with them before. 
Um, for example, the head of comms at McLaren used to be at Williams, has been in the industry a lot longer. We've sort of done different work with, with her at different points. Um, but then, for example, at Haas, their head of comms is very good with me because Haas wanting US audience uh, kind of interaction, I, I can offer that. Uh, so it does also depend on the viewpoint. I remember standing doing radio stuff, waiting for Mattia Bonotto a few times this year and being shunted back and back and back in the queue, even though I was there ready to interview him live because I didn't have a TV camera. It was only radio. And they had to prioritize first Italian media, which was understandable, but then TV. And they do it to the extent that I wasn't allowed to interview him until Sky Italia had interviewed him because they couldn't show up and have to wait. That wasn't going to be allowed. Mm. So even though he was stood around waiting and I was free and we could have got it done and I could have left, I was, you know, you see where you are in their pecking order. So that's where sometimes those relationships can be different as well. Um, and in terms of an industry standard, I, I wish there was one, but... Mm. Um, Mikhailo slightly It would, easier. yeah. But <laughs> it is kind of, it's fair enough. That is, that's a big part of this job that whenever people ask me for certain advice about being a journalist, at least, I would say one of the biggest things to be is like honest and legitimate and authentic. Because if you're not a real person that someone can engage with and can kind of learn to trust or can get on with, or at least know where they stand with, very quickly people see through it that you just want something out of them, that you're, you're digging for info, whatever it may be. Um, and if you don't have a good relationship with someone, then you're not going to get to any of that information or you're not going to get very far. Yeah. And it's, you know, you spend so much time and people are, you know, it's a brilliant job to do, but people are so committed to work in this industry. You do need to have a good rapport with people and actually, you know, it's it's just too tiring to be fake. Yeah. So I, I guess those those sort of soft skills are something that people don't necessarily think about when when they're choosing a career in journalism. I mean, I, I speak to a lot of young people about motorsport and how to get into it. And um, they're great when you're talking to them on LinkedIn or you're having a chat through email um, and, you know, they could be very good writers and then you meet them face to face and and they can't hold a conversation. I suppose mm. that's a bit of a deal breaker for, for a career such as yours where relationships are key. And like you say, with race teams, it's important. D does the same apply to drivers? I'd imagine that you have to build up a certain rapport with the drivers in the paddock if you want to approach them and get that great quote. So I, I suppose that sort of team relationship extends to the drivers and you have the same kind of, not issues, but needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can tell quite often when you do get an interview with someone about how you know, almost basic some of the responses can be, like they've gone through them a million times, which drivers do do. I've done TV pen work before in the past and you've seen them go around the pen and they're getting asked the same two or three questions and they're refining the answer in the first two or three goes. And then by the time they're on the fourth kind of TV crew, they are saying the exact same thing over and over again because they've worked out exactly what it is that they want to say and how best to say it. And when you then get other uh, avenues where maybe I run over to them with a mic walking down the paddock post-race or something on the grid, and that is when that relationship comes into it. You know, are they willing to talk or not? Uh, Daniel Ricciardo, for example, at his final race in Abu Dhabi, um, wasn't on the grid like the timing didn't quite work out and i got uh, i missed him a couple of times that had been lined up uh, and then when i could get him walking back from the national anthem he was trying to get in the zone and he was like you know just kind of waved me off politely but was like no not right now but because i'd done that i then got him after the race and he was great because he was like yeah i appreciate you didn't hound me or stick the mic yeah. in my face when i said no you know you've, it's give and take you know obviously i need or want something from them um but that doesn't mean it's at all costs so yeah if i think if you don't try and build that relationship up as well and just kind of put yourself in their shoes sometimes, um, it, it can hurt. So yeah, from my perspective, I've always found that stuff very important. Yeah, and, and like from a content, I was going to ask um, you, Jess, in terms of, I know the Ferrari stuff you did more recently with uh, Carson Chagall, you know, you get a different perspective, I guess, um, when you're approaching drivers through 
a different lens, a less kind of, you know, obviously there's a time and a place to ask the the classic questions of a driver. What did you make of the race? Blah, blah, blah. But also now, I think more than ever, and I'm sure you've, you've both seen the change over the last kind of even just five years, um, that there's this, all of a sudden, there's this window into everyone wants to see the drivers as human beings, not just as, you know, mm. names above a racing car. Yeah, and I think that's kind of maybe a slight point of difference between what I do and what Chris Chris does. Like, I think he, Chris has written some really amazing features about drivers where I think you do get that same sense. But I think, they, again, they're all mainly to do with what's going on on track and maybe a little bit about what they've done away from track. But there's a, there's, there's a bit more of a... I don't want to say proper because I, I that that kind of devalues what maybe some of the things that I do and I don't I don't think they're any they're any less important. Um, but yeah, I've, oftentimes I'm coming with it with with that that viewpoint of like who are you as an individual? And to do that, you really have to get them to trust you because they are especially when we're in a racing scenario, they're conditioned by their press officer. Like you say this and you think this of the team and this is allowed and this isn't and you're almost trying to break that down a little bit and get them to relax and get them to trust you. And and that can be quite tricky when you're asking them to, I don't know, do something that might be considered slightly silly or would put them on the back foot. But then actually like some of the content that you get that sits alongside the more traditional stuff is really interesting um, and kind of gets a completely different viewpoint. But like I've worked with, with, with Charles and Carlos a lot and I think at least I can't talk on Carlos's side, but Charles, like I have quite a good relationship with him. Um, and so when he's, when he walks onto set and he's, what I want is when any driver walks onto set and sees me and they know me for them to go, okay, it's going to be all right. Like I, I kind of know what to expect. It's not going to be something that's going to put me on the back foot or whatever. And I think that's always the, been the aim. Like we, I used to say at WTF1, I want them to see our name on the, on the kind of the press sheet for the day and to go, actually, I'm looking forward to that one yeah. because I know that that's going to be something that's either slightly different or about them as people rather than why were you three-tenths slower than your teammate, which is oftentimes what they're getting asked in the more traditional sense that can kind of like, well, like, yeah, like Chris said, like it has to be asked, but they're getting asked that by everybody. So how do you get that point of difference that tells a different story and a different side of them and allows them to be people not just drivers yeah and i suppose it's a balancing act as well because you know take wtf1 is, is a good example it's a very different um sort of much more sort of cutting edge i suppose approach to motorsport journalist journalism in some regards but i guess you've got to be wary of doing something different that the drivers go look at wtf1 and go oh uh, yeah. no i've got to do something daft panic you know it's not me uh, so i suppose it's a real balancing act isn't it there was there was always like there was always a line and i think i carried that through to because one of the things that i did when i first joined the the network was i had two brands to work with like autosport which has this amazing legacy you know it's been there since the very first grand prix it's got obviously a very loyal uh certain type of fan base so you know it it's doing its thing over here and then i had another one which was motorsport.com that kind of didn't really have a uh, the same footprint. It was newer. It's only been around since 1994, but that also opened up a an avenue for me to maybe bring more of that perspective that I'd had when I was at WTF One onto the, that side of of what was then considered just to be, I guess, a mainly just a news outlet, but had didn't have that kind of brand loyalty. So, but there's definitely, as you say, like there's a there's a 
what I've been very, very clear to do is say, you know, we're not silly, but we can have fun. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the difference in that everybody can have a laugh and everybody can talk about things that are, you know, not so serious, but you don't ever want to have them, yeah, go like, I'm not doing that. Like that would be the the the, the absolute mm. worst case scenario for me was if I ever was working with a driver and they refused to do something because they just didn't, they just thought it was below them or it was, it was not the right thing to do. So, and luckily I, I can say I've never had that happen. So, um, uh, so that's, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's the, that's the difference. Like there's a, there's a line and as long as you're really strong and sure in terms of what is, um, brand safe and what's not, then you should be, you should be okay. And you can kind of, have a bit of fun. A very quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsors at F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first class hotels and transfers, and unprecedented access, including driver appearances, private pit lane walks, behind the scenes tours of the illustrious F1 paddock, team garages, the famous podium, and loads more. It's the closest you can get to Formula One. And thanks to F1 Experiences, Motormouth listeners can get 5% off your next F1 Experiences package by using the code MMPODCAST when booking online at f1experiences.com. So what do we think the kind of future holds um, with this space? Because one thing I think is quite interesting, say, let's look ahead 10 years, right? And most of the F1 grids... Um, in 10 years' time will be different. There'll be people who are, you know, kids nowadays and, and possibly watching, whether it's autosport, whether it's WTF1, whether it's reading Racer, whether it's watching my stuff, whether it's listening to this podcast. You know, I, I feel like in 10 years' time, the, the drivers will be so much more um, used to this space existing, I guess, beyond the traditional journalistic front. How, how do you two see the sport changing in the next five, 10 years? Just Not just in terms of, driver acceptance of like you say just the more kind of fun stuff the more light-hearted the more social media centric stuff but also just the space as a whole I suppose because for you Chris obviously you're coming from a more um traditional journalistic background but that still has a place and I guess it's kind of allowing both sides to work because the F1 fan base you've got some fans who want to get really delved into the details and other fans who just like drivers as personalities and characters yeah, I mean, it's quite funny you should say I'm coming from a more traditional background, which I, I am. But at the same time, when I started out and um, was working at ESPN, like media, uh, online media weren't getting accredited to F1 races. Like the internet was still being kind of blocked out and it, you had to be a print publication or a broadcaster. And then, yeah, so we really struggled to get accredited. Uh, and then once we started getting in, that was sort of 2011, 2012, 2013 time. And it was about 2013 and it opened up more. But then you'd get in and social media was still being shunned at that point. Uh, you know, you couldn't tweet. Even teams weren't allowed to sort of tweet photos or videos Mad. or whatever. It was it was so slow catching up in that sense that I felt like I was kind of at the forefront of the, as in, not that I led it or anything, but I was part of, uh, my timing was lucky, the change towards, okay, a lot more online-centric stuff and um, opening it up to a much bigger audience that way. And then social media being uh, much more welcomed. Now we can do little bits uh, at the track that, never used to be allowed before still massively restricted yeah it is but it's, it's things like we can do little bits of filming as long as it's you know not including a team or something that i can film myself for racer for a couple of minutes every day in the paddock if i want just to show you there and add some value 
And I think that will evolve quite quickly. I think it will be the way that the, at the moment, it's the broadcast deals that kind of restrict it because as TV and radio companies pay so much money and get to define exactly what it is that they then want from that, that then has the knock-on effect of, okay, well, then that's what's left for online, um, social, print, whatever it is. And I think as TV companies start opening up and going, okay, actually, this kind of supplementary content helps us, more people get into the sport this way, then I think there'll be a little bit more of an opening for other content creators to do some more kind of unique, different, uh, original stuff. But I think a lot of it will kind of remain similar in the sense that the, the aim will be, how do you, and I'm going to still want to Jess's own terms here from her, but she talks about like a funnel of getting people interested in F1. And it's how do you get as many people interested as possible? But in a sense, the way you're going to monetize certain key areas are people that are fully invested, like that are really, really keen in the sport, really interested. They want to pay for their Sky Sports subscription or they want to pay for their Autosport subscription or uh, race magazine, whatever it may be. So to, you have to get people to a certain point where they, they're really they're going to part with money for a lot of this stuff, that they've got that level of interest. And I think it does mean that actually a lot of the core pillars will remain the same uh, for certain outlets and, and, and what they offer. It's just going to be the way they get to offer it that might change a little bit. Uh, and then also platforms. I mean, there's no way even five years ago, we probably wouldn't talk about TikTok. Mm. Um, I'm still so backwards that I don't have a TikTok account, really. Um, so I'm trying to convince him. I'm trying to convince him. Tom, have you not got one? No, no. It's I mean, an, it's inevitable. Okay. It's inevitable. Oh, okay. No, no, I think, I think, but you know what? I think actually that's <laughs> totally fine because I think when the, the, the temptation always is, is that we have to be on every platform all at once, all the time. And actually, I think as things explode, there is, there is, I think, an, an innate need to then distill and actually become um, experts in a certain thing. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think actually that's, kind of where I was going to go because I totally agree with what Chris just said but I actually think what will open up is that there will be almost niches within the niche so one thing that we haven't really seen in F1 like I remember again not to keep talking about kind of past things but WTF1 we just put up a video about what a steering wheel does an F1 steering wheel it was an old one it was a 2012 F1 steering wheel that did like two million views on YouTube because no one had ever put up a video about what an F1 steering wheel had done. We did a video on pit stops and how they differ across motorsport series. That did another like 2 million views. Now, every team's done a steering wheel video. Every, like, you know, we, we've, we've covered the basics. So the, the only way now that people are going to grow is to actually find niches and actually find, okay, this is my area of this big topic that I can then make my own and that will work that will be the same for brands as well you know like i always say so autosport focuses on news tech analysis so that is their three pillars that's what they focus on motorsport.com focuses on culture lifestyle um as well as um kind of news and updates but but you know it's as interested about what goes on off track as it is on on track so there's there's going to be and, and you know that's still quite broad there might be people that are totally and only interested in what fashion is worn in the paddock and that will be a niche and that will that will have an its own audience so i think there's going to be almost like areas opening up and niches opening up within i mean we're only talking about formula one as well like mm. there's 
that there's there's so much untapped potential in places like WEC, MotoGP. You know, the thing that that actually blew my mind was Chris. Um, Chris asked me a few months ago, did I know anyone that was a MotoGP influencer? There are none. Like, and, and that is to, huge, to, right? It's massive, and and that again has to do with the level of access that um, I think content creators can get with MotoGP, which has maybe been a bit of a, you know, you can't help but watch F1's meteoric rise in terms of popularity and people wanting to buy in and get interested in it and create content and and that everything like that. But MotoGP has kind of not had that same movement mm. um but the idea that there's this major international racing series that has no influencers that i just how how can that it's even mad. be it's mad but it's, it's a bit like with with something like WEC or le mans you know the le mans 24 yeah. hour one of the greatest race on the planet in many people's eyes um you know a, a feat of human and mechanical endurance and again you don't really get um, anyone for honing in on the World Endurance Championship like you do Formula One. It's interesting what you say about the funnel. I want because with the whole Netflix effect with um, Drive to Survive and those sort of armchair fans who have come in via that um, that platform, I wonder where they'll sit in the funnel in terms of monetization and spending their 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 money. You know whether they'll just sit at the top of the funnel and not quite get into it from a spend perspective. But- it's amazing though how how lucrative that top of funnel is because they're the people that will buy merch. They're yes, the people 100%. that will like that they they're buying. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Into the lifestyle and the culture of F1, they might never ever go to a Formula One race in their life. But actually, I mean, the last time I did a fan survey, I think um, we surveyed... uh, an audience, I think it might have been WTF1s probably, but like, I, I think not, not 65% of the audience had never been to a Formula One race mm. in their life. And I think that is to do with the nature of Formula One, right? I mean, if right. you're based in Europe, you're lucky that you have quite a few races that you can choose to go to, but even then, it's expensive. at least, you know, yeah, one of them, it might be in your home country, country not even like hometown <laughs> or, you know, lo- like close by. I mean, Silverstone for a lot of people in the UK is the arse end of nowhere, right? And it's expensive to stay there or you yeah. have to camp or whatever. So the the actual logistics of Formula One make it very difficult to actually attend a race mm. unless you are lucky enough to be able to travel. So those those top of funnel people that kind of want to be involved in it actually have like massive economic weight in the sport because they will buy into the easy to get stuff, which is merchandise which is following these influencers or what you know wanting to be part of the world or creating their own UGC or yeah so it's I, I totally agree in terms of what F1 and what the broadcasters are going to want is that funnel down but but that's not to negate the people at the top because they are they are they yeah. they hold a lot they wield a lot of power yeah but it's not just that as well for a lot of them so obviously everyone comes in from the top so a bunch of them do still filter down or, you know and wherever people then end up is 
completely fine. It's up to them. You don't. It's not like, oh, you're not a proper fan because you didn't go all the way to the bottom of the funnel or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I count myself as something similar when it comes to other sports. I do it with yeah. like baseball in the US. Yeah. I've got how many? Three Cubs jerseys? Well, yeah, he has a whole <laughs> cupboard in this room that just have like sports jerseys. And there was one day, like I think uh, the Warriors won the... Uh, NBA championship when we were in Montreal, yeah. And he was immediately on his phone looking at what like special edition jersey they were going to do like have you you've seen them play a couple times is that right? yeah yeah i've been to a few games I, and with all these i've yeah i've been to games but obviously it's a lot easier because there's more and if yeah. you do go to the states and you're in that city they're playing pretty much every day or something yeah. you, know, you do get the opportunities in that way uh but yeah i, I follow it from afar i don't I, baseball's more the example i use but basketball would work just as well where i don't know the nuances of the sport like i don't watch it and i can't really understand <laughs> like i can with say football or something like mm when a team's playing well, why, or, or certain aspects or certain jewels. But I still am really passionate about the end result and the gear. Yeah, um, like we went, we, went, we went to see the Cubs play when we were in Chicago. Like, like, there is a way of being a fan without needing to know. And this is what always pisses me off. Because somebody, you know, somebody asked me about like, oh, well, you know, the 2012, Brazil 2012. Like, obviously a big race, but I was like, I can't remember what happened. You, and there are some people that just have like encyclopedic levels yeah, of knowledge. Yeah. Like I've got yeah. a girl on my team, Laura, who literally, like her her level of knowledge of the history of Formula One is incredible. But I don't think that then discounts my no. level of knowledge or my understanding or my appreciation for it. It just means that I, she's got, I a good, she's got a better long-term memory. That's oh, literally 100%. it. You should but be punished for that. Exactly, right? But I saw something the other day as well, because obviously one of the things that's, that's cropped up in recent years is like the influx of female fans. And um, I mean, F1 has always been a sport, I feel, that has had a lot of gatekeepers. Not even recently. Like, it's just always been that way. Um, that there's almost like this level of snobbery in terms of what counts. Like, oh, you like F1. Well, prove it mm. kind of mm. well you know, name three of their songs kind of thing like approach mm. to it do you know what i mean and it, it's it, i think like it's got it's gotten or it feels like it's gotten worse because of the social media aspect of it and you can see it happening rather than just experiencing it for yourself but you know we've seen like female fans maybe experience or enjoy or are interested in different aspects of formula one from say uh male fans or you know, fans that have been watching it for decades rather than the past few years. Um, but there was a study, I remember um, someone sent me a study whereby they were talking about how men uh, as fans tend to want to absorb like every single piece of information that they can. They almost collect information. And that is their, that's their way of expressing fandom. Whereas women seem to be less inclined to do that. They, they, they connect on a different level. And it's interesting to see or to think about that because when you look at the gatekeeping that's going on, a lot of it, or like F1 fans tend to, which is still predominantly male dominated in terms of its fandom, as well as in the industry itself, um, they tend to approach it and be like, well, what happened? Canada 2007 corner three, tell me what happened. Like, that's how you prove that you're a fan. And I think that that is, that's quite sad because... Well, one, it's sad because I mean, if you know that, like, it's, that's that's a very granular level of detail. I'm not even sure you would know. Do you know what happened? Which lap? 
<laughs> which, which second of the race? No, you're, right. you're absolutely uh, right. You're absolutely right. And, but that's the beauty of Formula One is that there are so yeah, many exactly. aspects to enjoy. I mean, you know, Tom is actually, Tom's one of those guys that's very good at picking up um, knowledge from different eras. I've tested you before. And, you know, going back to sort of 2014, you pluck something out, out, out of your head. For me, I love the business of, of Formula One. I like the, the mm -hmm. commercial aspects of it. It's become my career. You know, the whole sponsorship side of things, which is a, a fascinating industry in its own right. You know, there's so many different things to get in, involved with. And you mentioned there about women in motorsport. And it's something we wanted to touch on. And there's a lot going on at the moment. There's the more than equal stuff that Coulthard and Kate Bevan are involved with. We've had W Series come and probably go. We've got the new um, Formula One um, Academy um, that's launching soon. There are, there are things happening. But do you think, both of you, do you think we're doing enough for um, women in motorsport? And, um, and then second part of the question, does Jamie Chadwick deserve a shot at F1? Uh, I'll go with the second part of the question first, just because it's a bit easier to answer and quicker to answer, is that she might, but she's still so far down the ladder to be able to make that call. I mean, you know, going into Indy Lights or Indy Next, as they're now calling it, um, I I'd still, like, it's, it's a good category, but it would have been like her going into Formula 3. And there's not a driver in like heading into what would be their rookie Formula 3 season next year that I'd say they deserve to be an F1. They might in the future. They can maybe prove themselves. Similarly, the way Nick DeVries has gone around getting to Formula One. When he came out of Formula Two, I didn't think he was ready for an F1 seat or, or kind of, you know, I wasn't that gutted that he didn't get one. I kind of thought, uh, I don't know if he really shines enough to get ahead of anyone else on the grid right now. But what he's done since and the more rounded driver he's become at a much later age into his mid-late 20s, then yeah, absolutely deserving. So I think that could be potentially in future. I, don't, I certainly don't think it should be that people try and judge her now. I think it's a bit too unfair to do it with what she's had in terms of experience. But um, I don't think motorsport in general, um, and certainly not single-seater junior categories of motorsport, uh, are doing anywhere near enough. And it's great that more are doing it now. But what really annoyed me on this front was the discussion around the F1 uh, category that they've put together. Because people were saying, oh, you know, they should have just helped W Series. They should have just given money to W Series. It was already there. And it's like, why do people think that all it needs is one single category to try and help a group of probably 18 female drivers, and yeah. that will fix the problem. How many young men get to go racing and have opportunities and seats in, in cars that, you know, that suit them, fit them, uh, are designed for them? Because that's another thing, kind of like the physiological differences mean that there's a lot of cockpits that just are not um, kind of compatible for women to, you know, and we're only talking small things, but, but motorsport is done in small details. Yeah. The differences are, especially in spec series that then have differences in teams and what they can produce, you are looking for the smallest gain. And if, if just not being comfortable in the car or able to do certain things in the car, that is such a big disadvantage. But then to say, oh, okay, as long as one category is trying to change that, you're at best going to get maybe one standout driver from that group of 18, which would be a hell of a hit rate to have one standout driver from such a small pool that then has to step up to a category full of much more experienced and well-prepared male drivers and say, go on, shine. And when they don't go, oh, well, it proves they can't do it and that that category is not good enough to supply them. It's the complete wrong mindset. What we need is to try and find a way of making it as, as many opportunities to get as many women in cars as possible and then make sure that that doesn't get too high up the ladder so you don't segregate all the way up and that they can then step into something like Formula 3 or even at Formula 2 level and you've got three, four, five women that are more than capable of going in there. And if one of them does well, then they're going to be maybe winning a championship at F3 and F2. They're going to get to F1. But... 
Um, that feels like it's just they're just looking for one Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen esque figure. Yeah. Like how rare are they? Even when you've got thousands and thousands of of men doing it, and then from that point, it's like, well, then what happens afterwards? And I think Jess maybe speaks a bit better about this than I do. But just getting one female driver into an F1 car for one race, it, it, are people going to view it as, oh, good job done? Like, you know, what happens next? So. Yeah, yeah. But it's an it's an education thing, isn't it? Because you know that's very articulately put, and. I, I wholeheartedly agree with with everything you've just said. The, the trouble is you you jump onto Twitter um, or LinkedIn and you see the name Jamie Chadwick or Alice Powell even, or, you know, there is a few, you know, at th that kind of level. And the chat on Twitter is, why isn't she in an F1 seat? She should be in an F1 seat. You know, why hasn't this happened yet? There's nobody outside of people in the in the industry who are giving that balanced view. It just feels like just stick her in a car and then, you know, job done. I think that's that's to do with again maybe going a bit macro here but there's this societal need for instantaneous change as in like yeah it, it it just needs to happen now like w series has failed because it hasn't produced a f1 driver and it's like well that's not actually how it works we're trying to repair decades if not you know this motorsport came about from rich men racing around in cars. It was like, it wasn't even really a proper, I'm going to get killed for saying this. It wasn't like a proper sport. It was like, it was genuinely just something for them it to wasn't. do on the weekends, mm. right? You would, you would, right. you would, you would buy a car, you'd take it racing. And then all of a sudden it became this more nuanced thing of, oh, actually, you know, this could turn into a proper thing and we could run it professionally. And then you got like the bodies, um, the governing bodies are kind of emerging and it became a proper outfit. But, you know, it was never meant or made with female racing drivers in mind. And so that what we're trying to do here is 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 kind of take it back to basics, which is what I think I, I again I and Chris and I have had many a debate around this topic. Obviously, I have a, a slightly different viewpoint on certain things, but I think for the most part we agree. Um in that it's not going back far enough. It doesn't, it's not like, you know, we're, we're setting up a series for junior, junior racing drivers, but they're still like fairly old in comparison to who they would then be going up against in terms of when they were meant to go back from, like from the yeah. segregated series into a mixed series. And they also have a lot less seat time because W series only races X number of times a year. Um, and if you like, you know, I know, I know Jamie Chadwick has had been able to probably primarily through the funding that she's won through W Series and obviously certain backers to be able to arrange private testing. But for the most part, those girls can't do that. And so when you're, if we're going to compare apple and oranges, like you're talking about drivers that have had so much more single seat to seat time competing against these, these female drivers. And I really hate using the term female drivers, but here we are. I guess we do need to kind of differentiate if we're going to be talking about this. But um that, that haven't and you're asking them to be the same or you're asking them to be competitive like you just that just would never if we were just comparing two male drivers and saying this person I mean we get we get it all the time right pay drivers tend to get far and, ha and are semi-decent at least because they can afford to have that seat time to have that pri those private tests to get the sponsors to pay for the seats like it is still a, at the end of the day it's a sport driven by money mm. and the conversations that i've had so chris and i went we were lucky enough to go out to the states um in the summer and we went to the skip barber racing school 
and we did a three day Formula Four test, both him and I. And um, there were certain things that kind of popped up for me that weren't the same for you. On it, arrival, besides. So, you know, when we arrived, um, I there was there was a group of about 12 of us, was there? About 12, maybe like more, uh, of students who were going to be taking part in the same test. Um, there was one other woman and she was she was just there for a jolly, really. Like she wasn't, she wasn't, it was a bit of a bit of fun for three days or whatever. Um, and when I turned up to the registration desk, the girl behind the desk was like, Oh, and are you watching? Wow. Like, no, 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 I'm 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 here to take part. And as soon as I said that, she was like, Oh god, amazing, right, okay. Like but it was it was the, the assumption was oh, I'm here to watch him. Yeah, yeah. And and it and it wasn't. And there was stuff like they didn't have kits small enough for me. So my helmet was too big. So when we were, you know, when we got up to like pushing top so, well, we were limited in the cars, but when we were pushing like top speed, my helmet was lifting. Like when we were going down the straights, like, and that's so distracting because you're all of a sudden you're not you're not focusing on where's my braking point. You're focusing on am I gonna is my helmet gonna come off? Yeah. So there was stuff like that. You know, they didn't have um they didn't have any racing boots small enough for me. Um, we just about got a race suit small enough for me. Obviously, the cockpit in the car, these are all stock Formula Four cars. I had to have special padding put in i mean some of the other guys did too but i had to have a lot because yeah. my legs were too short and my hips were too big so i was kind of rattling around the cockpit in one way and then stuck and quite uncomfortable in others so yeah. it was even that was you know a three-day experience but even then it was like You're this isn't this isn't this but, isn't but built you, for but, me but your, I'd like, i don't belong here but to your point about going further back you know even when i look at the karting events that we do so we have a lot of girls that come to the karting events and they need um the back support um the back the, the seat inserts um yeah even with the seat inserts that doesn't do the job. They still, some of them are still struggling to reach the pedals. And as you say, they're walking around these baggy old um, race suits <laughs> because they're all designed for blokes. The helmets don't fit, and and that's yeah. at karting level, you know. That and corporate yeah. karting, you know. So it's it's a huge task, isn't it? But I'm so, I'm sorry if if Alpine can develop a car that works with Esteban Ocon, who's about seventeen <laughs> foot tall, and Fernando Alonso, who's like the like next tidiest to Yuki Tsunoda, there is not an excuse. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you're right. That's the thing. There isn't an excuse, but the, the people don't look at it. And then they go, as Jess was saying about what, where money's involved or needed to get people through. I know some people then level the argument like, well, if someone would just fund, put all the money behind one female driver or sorry, basically one girl who hasn't even been karting yet and says, you know, get in a go-kart, we'll give you all the time in the world. And, and you know, with time and experience, you'll get good. But it's like, but no one will do that because they know all the way along that road towards whichever pinnacle that you want to target there are obstacles that are unfairly slanted against women. And as you've just said about the way that certain things don't fit or the gear that they've got or yeah. the, the car just not being quite suited to them in terms of, you know, some of the power steering stuff, which you don't need by the time you reach Formula One. Like, it's, it's pointless, but it's a, it's a roadblock on the way. And Anthony Davidson, I did a podcast with him uh, on Motorsport Magazine, who did a, he really explained it well. He said he felt disadvantaged getting into a Formula One car back in the mid-2000s because... He knew he was quicker, like it's on skill, than most of the drivers that he'd been competing with. But physically, with his size, because he was small and he wasn't like bulky up top, he was fatiguing towards the end of races. And he retired from a few where he made mistakes and, and, and uh, crashed out or genuinely just had to almost park it. And he said he felt like it shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. like, it shouldn't come down to how much can I lift in the gym? Yeah. It's how, how can I basically 
find the quickest way around a racetrack. They're two different things. And he says if he had it on his level, he can't imagine what it's like for a lot of women. And so you're not going to get people put all the money behind them and give them those opportunities because they know, in a sense, it's slightly it's not sensible money if it's not if you yeah. are even you've got you know two percent less chance because they will add up as small things. But that's a gamble that then you put the money behind a guy because he's got two percent more chance. Yeah, that's why it happens that way. It's uh, but, go on, Tom. This, this is this is why you can't measure the success or failure of something like W W Series on whether they got a driver to F one. It's the it's the unknown effects. The in ten years' time, is there's going to be someone, a young girl coming up who watched W Series and that was the the route in it. It's changing the attitudes, isn't it? It's like your experience, Jess, yeah. turning up to that event. That it's not even a malicious thing. It's just this expectation that oh, it's motorsport, so it's going to be predominantly male. In, in terms of like other, I don't know, like nursing, for example. You, you, when it's a when when the nurse isn't. Um, a, a woman, you, you would say a male nurse because you, there's expectation. And, and it's not necessarily, it, it's, it's not born of, of individual malice necessarily. Sometimes it is, don't get me wrong. But I just think it's this expectation that needs to change. And it's like you, you get to a stage where, you know, at the Motormouth Kite event, so the team I was on, where we got third place, was I, I was the only male on the team. Um, and I was chatting to, to, to the girls there and, and they were saying that, you know, I think it's... It's between 90 or 95%. I think it's more like 95% of racing licenses are held by males. Mm -hmm. And it's like when you've got that such a smaller pool and you've got this assumption that if you're if you're of a certain gender, you're going to be either into motorsport or not, that ha that will only change over time. There's not that, yeah. like you say, like a quick one, well, like one-off solution. You know? if, if, even now, so I got asked by a pretty high-profile person in Formula One at Abu Dhabi, so are you actually into motorsport? Like, when did you get into it? And it's like, I, no guy would have that asked of no, him. Maybe, no, maybe, it would, maybe it would be because I, I love people's Genesis stories because I actually think it's really, it's really cool. And you will find, like, usually there's a story about a family member or a friend or yep. something is quite like, it's, there's a very, um, like, yeah, origin stories of how people got into motorsport tend to be really lovely stories. Um, and... So I don't mind talking about that, but it, you, you know that it's not being asked. And actually, they, they prefaced it with, can I ask you a rude question? Oh, God. But Jess, and you're like, Jess, th this, this is the tip of the iceberg for, for oh women God, yeah. in motorsport. Because we, so this is an area we're going to be, um, as a podcast, we're focusing on quite a lot over the next few weeks. Um, the reason being, and Tom will be bored of me talking about this, but we, we had um, Ariana Bravo on the show a few weeks ago. And um, much like we've done in this conversation, we were talking about, um, quote, females. And um, we were having a conversation. And then I got called out on Twitter for using the word female. So there's this whole mm. new other part of it about, you know, how we describe people and, and their genders and, and what words are derogatory and what words are not. And um, so we're going to be getting really deep into these subjects around not just women in motorsport, but how people talk about women in motorsport. So that's one part of it. Um, and and should they be should we be referencing them as females or, or women or something else entirely? Um, but there's there's also pieces around um, not just, you know, guys coming up to you in the paddock and being like, come on, are you really interested in motorsport, Jess? You know, what's this? But it's, it goes well beyond that into, mm -hmm. you know, Women and girls that work, whether they're, you know, PRs in marketing, they're engineers, whatever position they are in the paddock, they're getting abuse in some cases. 
and it and it start it could be verbal it could be something else but there are real problems that need to be addressed and i've spoken to someone who's been in motorsport for 20 years very recently a woman and she says it's still going on she's like the stuff yeah. i could tell you about people who are big in motorsport who really shouldn't be doing certain things so there's there's a lot it's, it's such a complicated subject and we could go on for hours and hours and hours we've already gone over time so we're gonna have as always tom we've we've um we've got through about one tenth of of what we were aiming <laughs> to get through um, that's when you know the chat's good yeah it's good because we've just talked about you the whole time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's it's fascinating stuff and we won't keep you for too much longer um but there is a final three questions that we ask all of our guests um and they come from our friends and sponsors at f1 experiences and listeners don't forget go to f1experiences.com buy your products enter mm podcast on your checkout and you'll get your five percent discount um tom why don't you kick off with the first one this week Sure. So question one, and this maybe could be individually or collective. What's got you most excited at the moment? At the moment? Is it the off season? Christmas. You're finally yeah. free. <laughs> yeah. Time off, um, which isn't fully time off as well because you can't switch the internet off and there's a lot of work to still nope. be doing, but it's nice to be on a more normal kind of schedule mm. uh in one place like not, yeah not jumping on a plane yeah yeah and just kind of being able to build in things that are personal time basically this is the period of time where we go and see people that don't work in formula one and we're <laughs> like hi we exist uh, <laughs> and i like it's so like good to see you please catch me up in your entire year yeah. like i was at a baby i was at a baby shower for one of my friends last weekend and i've literally not seen her for for ages so there's that that stuff which is really nice obviously like seeing family and things i think it's the same for a lot of people around this time of year. But... Planning a wedding is quite exciting. Yeah, yes. planning our, our oh, wedding. Oh, 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 oh. Right, plug, oh. plug for myself here. Um, okay, for if it. you If you need a wedding bar, we have, <laughs> we have one. It's, okay. it's Sylvian Squires. The bar's called Sybil. She's a beautiful three-birth horse box with a bar You're inside. shameless, Tim. And so shameless. I'll, I'm just saying, um, I'll send you the deets. And yeah, do it. She's amazing. I would be your barman, of course. And and my wife Chloe is a wedding stylist, so you know we've oh, got, okay. we've got you sorted. So, there we go. You know, All right, plug over. Okay, we can take our take our foot off the gas on that one then. Yeah, yeah. welcome to the Motormouth Wedding Special. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> live stream, love it. Live stream. Um, okay, good. So essentially, you're looking forward to normality, a bit of downtime. Yes. Yeah, um, and I know. I know that feels like I do. I always like. I feel like a lot of people complain. We love what we do. But it's just, it's so nice when it's such, so full on, like to just get those little It's hard work. Uh, F, you know, it's, it's nonstop. You know, it's, it's full <laughs> on. Um, to both of you, let's, let's go to you first, Jess. How much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time? And how much do you put down to damn right hard work? So I used to struggle with imposter syndrome a lot. And so, and a, a big sign of imposter syndrome is just putting everything down to luck. And going, oh, it wasn't me. It was just this happened and and here I am. But I think there has to be a point in time where that stuff happens more and more. It is not coincidence. There must be something that you're doing that that's right. Um, so I think opportunities coming up right place, right time is de like definitely a big part. But I think that's the reason those opportunities have arose is because people know who I am. They've seen me work. They 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 trust me. They want to work with me, and I've been really lucky in that. For most of my jobs, I haven't actually had to interview. I've been approached, and 
head I guess headhunted. So um yes, it's it's good. And a couple of the a couple of the times people have approached me and I'm like, excuse me, me? Like, sorry, like, is there not somebody else you want to talk to about this? But um so I think it's it's definitely a mixture of things, but also I guess when you're starting out really early on and maybe you don't have that same footprint, it's about like you have to be ruthless in terms of what are you passionate about? What do you believe in? And how much, how hungry really are you? And I think that's a big thing because so many people talk to me or message me and say, I want to work in F1. And my question back sometimes is actually, but do you really? Because it's not for everyone. It, you know, the, I've actually worked with a number of people who, um, you know, I've had this recently where somebody on my team actually quit because they were just like, look, I love, I love motorsport. I love this world, but working in it is, is actually ruining my enjoyment of mm. my passion. So, yeah. And that was a really big thing for them to do. So, um, I think you've got to have hunger. You have to, you have to be good at what you do in order for those opportunities and that luck to arise. So I would say like, I, I would like to think it's about 75% hard work mm -hmm. and the rest luck and timing. But I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason, but I think you have to give the reason for it to happen. Yeah. So I, I could probably make it shorter then based on that. Um, but I'd say that the luck part was at the very start was getting in the door was was that first opportunity but that was from hustle and sorry that was hustle. It, you you get there you know you put yourself in the best position for it yeah um but i think there's a lot of very good people that just you know maybe the opportunity doesn't come up for a, a little longer than other people mm. um so yeah for me i went to uni and did sports journalism and kind of from a very young age actually from when i was doing my gcse's i was tailing tailoring everything to wanting to be a sports journalist because i'd worked mm. out i was never gonna be good enough to be a professional sports person mm. But from that, um, I still had to you know, work very hard from that point to when I got my first job. But that first job coming, you know, I might not have been in a position to take it. I might not have seen the application for it, whatever it may be, where there's certain things where it does. You, you, that's why I feel like you make your own luck. You have to give yourself the opportunity for that to happen. But, but once you get closer to this sort of thing, to, to almost towards like the end goal of getting a job in Formula One, as it was for me, or to report on it, then you get the chance to show what you can do. And that, that comes down to the hard work and the graft. And and then the opportunity is only going to come because you're good enough. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get those opportunities if you're not good enough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that passion is a big thing because a, a case study I always use is is Harry, who who does this podcast with me um, when when Tom's not here as well. Um, and and Harry Harry Benjamin has, has single-mindedly known exactly what he wants to do since he was about 16 or younger. He's like, I am going to be a commentator or, or, and or a presenter. And that's all I'm going to focus on. And he's put all his eggs in that basket. And, you know, fast forward five or six years and he's commentating on BBC Five Live alongside the people that have done it for years and years and years. You know, fair play to him. But he's, he's had that single-minded approach. And I think you've got to have that to a degree if you really want to hit the top. I am somebody who had no idea what they wanted to do when they grew up. I was though. The same. So conversely, I, my career has been built on following my nose and not knowing what I wanted to do and being a bit of a chameleon and going, okay, I see the bigger picture here. This is going to be really important. Therefore, I'm going to move myself into that yeah. space. So I want to just shout out for the people that have, that are sat at home and going, well, crap, I don't know what I want to do. 
that doesn't stop you being successful in this space. I think the, the point is you have to carve out what it is that you want for yourself. Yeah. I've been very lucky in that I've had a number of positions that have been made for me because I've said, like, I want to go off and do this. Can this, is this possible? And they've said, yes, we'll do that, which isn't going to be the same case for everybody. But I think I don't totally agree. I am in awe of people like Chris, yeah, like Harry, same. who have known from day one this is what I want to do. And they've been hungry and they've chased it. But there are also the people like me. That I'm in your, I'm in your camp. I'm exa I was exactly the same. And I, I, I had no idea what I was doing as even as a 23 year old, I was floating around like an absolute bum. And, um, <laughs> and, and it did take a stroke of luck for me to get into formula one. And, and I've stayed there ever since, but even when I was in it, it took me a long time to find my niche. And then when I did, and which turned out to be sponsorship, um, then everything changed, but it took an yeah. awful long time for me to get there. But like even with me, like I was doing graphic design, I was doing football YouTube, yeah. and then I decided to pivot to F1. Channel started to take off. And you say about opportunity, I started. I was like, ah, oh, let's start doing a podcast. And my first ever guest was Jess. She came on, and I was like, it, who's this that... kid who makes really nice thumbnails? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that that was my way in. The pink thumbnails got me in, right? And then and then obviously then I had Tommy on. Then I had Matt on. And then Matt offered me a job at WZF1 editing. So then that enabled me to do my channel more full-time and put more time into it. And it all, like, th there's all these little instances mm. where, again, that was kind of, that was luck in a way. But also I reached out to you. I was proactive in reaching out. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. you could have ignored me, but you didn't. And you know what? We're here today. So Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I don't want to labour the point too much. I appreciate it. It was one question that we'll, we'll spend 20 minutes on. But <laughs> I, I had a mate, um, my best mate at uni, who got like an award at the end of our degree um, for being basically the best sports journalist on the course, which I actually didn't mind. I remember it, but I wasn't like, oh, it should have been me. I, I genuinely thought <laughs> he was better. But the problem was, his attitude then was when he came out that, well, I'm a good sports journalist. I'm now qualified. I should get a job at, at this sort of level. And I went and did a, an unpaid internship and had and then worked evenings and weekends at the BBC logging football, which was great. I got, got paid to watch football, but it was it meant all I did really was work. But then most of my spare time would have been spent watching football anyway. Um, and I was doing this uh, nine to five. Well, you know, during the week, I was doing some paid internship at Bauer Media. So I was getting experience. And that meant that when the ESPN F1 job came along, I had this kind of attitude that they liked. And I had yeah a bit more of a portfolio. I had a good few references. Uh, I was also doing a bit of F1 blogging. He was just sat just applying for jobs and waiting for one that he felt was good enough for him almost or feeling like he should get. And not chasing it so much, and it and it didn't quite work for him in the same way. And his his career didn't kind of go in the direction he'd have hoped, uh, and not initially anyway. So I always felt then I was like, mate, you've got to go and be more proactive. You've got to go and make it happen for yourself. Just because yeah. you've got so far along the path that you think you now deserve it, doesn't mean it's not going to come. It will you. happen. Yeah. And if you stay still, it definitely won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. You're never entitled to success in life. You no, just still exactly. got to do your own thing. Absolutely. Um. Final question. Um. Again, collective or individual. What are you both scared of? Planning a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good answer. Goodbye, bank yeah. account. Um, scared of? I don't know. I'm. I mean, not. Yeah. I'm, have you got something? I've got. Yeah, I've Go got on one. Um, and it genuinely is. It's the day that um that I struggle uh for work, and it's as a yeah. freelancer is yeah. I say yes to everything because you just don't know the year where even if you've done a good job, but you know, if the business model isn't working out for a company or they, they need to change what they're doing and they don't have something for you, they might, it might not be intentional or slight on you, but it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I, there's not really the safety net as a freelancer. And you just see, so keep saying yes to try and reduce that happening. 
And it's so, yeah, so my fear is almost saying no to anyone yeah. to doing something because I worry that that will then come back and bite me in the future. And I'll be sat really worrying about where our future is going. Um, and if we do talk, you know, more broadly as, as a couple, yeah, we're talking about uh, a wedding, getting married, obviously, hopefully future family and stuff and house, we've got a dog, all these things you're trying to support. Mm. And knowing that professionally you're, you're doing all this and right now it's going great, but it is um, kind of the foundations might not be quite so strong as it would be in a full-time capacity going through a business and climbing the ranks or whatever um, is, is a kind of fear of mine, I'd say. Mine's probably like getting old and becoming irrelevant. Mm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like I've, I feel like I've hit that age now where people are telling me, oh my God, you're so like, you're so cringy. Like, why do you say that? Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, crikey. Like, oh no, I'm going to have to bow down to these younger people, especially yeah. in like, I guess, the, the area I currently work in um it's it's all a bit you know the the younger generation tends to lead the trend and lead what's cool so you have to kind of be like do not be that cringy person yeah, that's trying to be down with the kids but also like embrace it at the same time but so you've got that scary. you've got you know what i find with that and I, i'm with you because I, I i'm a so to chris's point i'm also a freelancer and a contractor and I have been since 2012 and sympathize completely with those fears. And I, it, it all compounded with me. I lost a giant, well, my major client um, a few years ago and had to rent out my house, you know, move in with the in-laws, all the, uh, disaster. And then two years later, you're back up again and it's it's a roller coaster. Mm. So I get that. But the age thing is interesting. I'm 41 and most of the people I, in the office that I consult with, they're probably in their 20s to mid 20s, some late 20s. It's quite a, a young company. And they look at me like a dad. I'm like, I'm 41. Yeah. I can still drink 10 <laughs> pints of beer. And um, and they're like, yeah, well, we don't do beer. It's not very cool anymore. I'm like, Damn yeah, it. Beer, no. no. Like, what? But, um, um, but what I like is that um, when you've when you you've been in the business for a little while and you're getting a few gray hairs, you you have that extra experience and knowledge. And I feel like now uh, you could put me in, in many scenarios and I'll feel comfortable. And I, I won't feel worried about a person of a certain hierarchy or you know, dealing with a difficult situation. I, you know, you the flip side is you have that experience, and and that's where it can be quite cool mm. to be a little bit. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm 30 in a month, just over a month. Knocking on, mate. So, um, yeah, I know, right? But I still think you're my you're my podcast dad. So. Oh, see, <laughs> and I bet you don't think I'm cool either. No, I mean, come on, Tim. Yeah, yeah, not. Cool. <laughs> well, listen, um. Jess, Chris, absolutely brilliant to have you on. Apologies we've kept you for so long, um, but really, really good fun. And I, I hope people learn a bit from um, from this show as well because there's some really good good um, nuggets there that you mentioned. Um, all the best with both of your respective careers and long may they continue. Um, and I'm sure we'll speak again, but for now, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. Before you go, one final reminder to check out F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first class hotels, travel and exclusive behind the scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter the code MMPODCAST, 
you'll get 5% off as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MNTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast